Beloved listeners, one of the most moving memoirs we've had the privilege to discuss on the program was titled Three Minutes for a Dog. It told the story of Paul Alexander, an American who contracted polio at the age of six, completely paralysed. He spent the rest of his life living in an iron lung. Many of you don't remember how terrifying polio was before doctors came up with a vaccine in 1955, but listeners of my generation remember how much we dreaded the disease as we witnessed a number of our playmates contract it. Now, polio has largely been eradicated, although there have been some concerns in the medical community about the virus resurfacing in London and New York. So it seems an apt moment to look back at the cultural history of polio, which is exactly what my next guest has been doing. Joanna Burke is a well-known social and cultural historian. She's Professor of History at Burbank, University of London, and a Fellow of the British Academy. What's more, she's the prize-winning author of 14 books, including histories of modern warfare, psychiatry, medicine, science and sexual violence. Joanna is also the Gresham Professor of Rhetoric and it is at uh, that venerable college of Gresham in London that she's been giving a, a series of lectures exploring the cultural history of six diseases that have afflicted millions of people worldwide. These include AIDS, breast cancer, tuberculosis and polio which we're about to discuss. And Joanna, welcome back. It's a long time since we last spoke and it's good to have you on the program. It's so lovely to hear your voice again, but I do listen to you. So actually, I hear your voice quite a lot. It's lovely. <laughs> oh, terrific. Now, you wouldn't be in any sense embarrassed if I compared what you're doing to what Susan Sontag tried back in 1978 with illness as metaphor. I think it's, um, I mean, Susan Sontag, that book, Illnesses, Metaphor, is really just an essay, is, I mean, it's it's had such an incredible impact on the way we think about disease, the way we think about how people who are suffering experience what they're going through, experience suffering, experience pain. So I think it's a great way to start this conversation. Can you remind the listener of the devastating effects of polio? which, we should reiterate, still has no cure. Yeah, polio is truly a frightening disease. Now, a lot of people actually have the virus, but a small proportion of those people develop the symptoms. And initially, the symptoms really just like a, a cold. You know, there's a slight fever, there's a hoarseness, there's tiredness, but very, very quickly, it develops into something truly, truly terrifying. So people wake up in the morning and find that they are completely paralyzed or they can't breathe or they can't eat. And the worst affected have to be put, as you've mentioned already, into an iron lung, which is a truly, um, I mean, it's an instrument of torture. It's this massive 
heavy cylinder type thing where people are sealed in from the neck down while the machine sort of alternates positive and negative air pressure, which enables the lungs to breathe in and to breathe out. And people can be incarcerated in this, these iron lungs for, for years, in fact, for you know their life in some cases. So truly terrifying. The only way, the only access people have to the outside world is this little mirror in front of them, which uh, reflects their their background. So they that's the only way they can communicate with people. And you know, as as you say, you know, the sense of torture, the sense of total immobility, the dependency that sufferers have on you know their caregivers is truly frightening. Um, you know, people with polio, the big polio epidemics, um, big ones, for example. 1916, and then the most important one in 1952, around 10 to 15% of sufferers eventually die. But a lot more, you know, suffer for, for years, if not the rest of their lives. Joanna, how was the virus transmitted? The virus we now know is transmitted through droplets and through infected hands. Those are the main ways it's it's transmitted, like like most viruses, in fact. Of course, knowledge of that came actually relatively late. So one of the terrifying things about polio for communities is precisely the fact that for such a long time, no one knew how it was transmitted. So there were all of these rumors circulating, you know, as thousands of people in various communities just literally became paralyzed. So, you know, people thinking, well, what what, what is causing this? Is it caused by eating ice cream? <laughs> is it caused by eating sugar? Is it caused by eating blueberries? Um, children passing it on um, when they when they swap pencils in school municipal um, swimming pools were all closed down you know throughout um, the, the states I remember libraries were in a panic and uh, books were yeah. often put into uh, glass boxes for treatment yes. before they were lent out again. Absolutely, in Australia, libraries you know disinfected all of their stock, um, and there were there were real panics about about what was happening. But also, and I think this is a kind of a really sad aspect of it, that you know, in many communities, actually, poor minoritized people were blamed for spreading the disease. So you know, Italian immigrants, Jewish immigrants, people who live in poor areas were accused of you know because of their unhygienic habits of somehow spreading the disease. So you know, there was this terrible idea that flies were flying from you know poor you know slum areas and infecting middle people in middle class suburbs. It's really weird. The flies never kind of flew the other direction. Um, and we now know that in fact quite the opposite is the case. But these sorts of rumours really escalated and, and had devastating effects on minoritised communities. Joanna, despite my lifelong passion for Egyptology, I didn't know it's referenced in the hieroglyphs. Yes, it is. It's one of the earliest references to polio. Now, we don't actually know if it was polio. It has to be admitted here. But all the symptoms that are being displayed in these Egyptian hieroglyphics are, in fact, indicative of polio. And we also know that it did exist. We know that through you know, the analysis of bones, for example, that there was polio infection, at least, in those communities. So it has a, it has a really long life. But the real panics about it 
are very, very modern. In other words, they are 20th, early 20th and, and mid 20th century. You mentioned the 1916 epidemic, believed to be the largest in the developed world. Tell me about the Great Cat Massacre. <laughs> Oh, Philip, this is one of my favorite stories. I shouldn't laugh because it's it's a terrible story, actually. In 1916, July 1916, in New York City, um, there was a polio outbreak. And as a response to that, people believed that cats were responsible. And so all these cats were evicted, if you like, from their homes. And it ended up, the Great Cat Massacre of 1916 is the fact that within a three-week period, 72,000 cats were killed. 72,000 just in one, in fact, not even the whole city, one part of the city were simply massacred um, and 8,000 dogs. And because they were believed incorrectly to spread the disease, but the other interesting thing about the story, which is why, you know, I call it the Great Cat Massacre, which for those of you listening who are historians, there's a very famous book of this 18th century big, you know, Great Cat Massacre. So I'm referencing that. But one of the fun things I think about this, this panic, if you like, is that there was one particular cat who was considered to be the sort of the leader of the cats. He well, was the, um, the ground name, zero he was a cat. pirate. Yes, he was a, he was, they called him the pirate cat. His name was, as you say, Wang, a tailless mauve cat who was said to lead a gang of other cats who were spreading the disease, but also, you know, stealing, um, food, keeping people awake by screeching and, and, and things like this. And so the authorities in New York City were going to get, you know, Wang and make sure they executed him. But I think the story, you know, has a funny side to it, but of course, it represents something extremely serious, and this is the total panic. People who don't know what's causing it and are seeing their children in particular, 80% of people infected are children, you know, become paralysed and dying. It's a wonder that the your cat story didn't sort of make it into the musical. Now, you point out <laughs> that in contrast to diseases like pneumonia, diphtheria or typhoid, it wasn't death that people feared so much with polio as the aftermath. Yeah, absolutely. A good proportion died, but actually being encased in a iron lung or being immobilized with splints and, and things like this, these are these these are really forms of torture um, and very, very painful and very uncomfortable. And this was what people feared. And of course they're also fearing the the sense of you know, what is my future going to be like? Do I have a future? So well, you, you people... make the point that in the 50s, when Americans were asked about what kept them awake at night, fear of polio was second only to the uh, fear of the atom bomb. Yeah, I mean, I think this really does indicate just how you know, frightened people were. And, you know, and children who are infected with this disease, you know, often internalized it as though somehow they had been naughty, they had done something wrong. So there's, you mentioned this memoir when you started talking about, about polio, Philip, and, but there's so many memoirs of children, of people looking back to their childhood and saying, 
oh my goodness, at that time, I thought I'd been naughty. I'd done something wrong. I was deserted by my family. I couldn't see my friends. I wondered what would happen to me. Would I ever catch up? Would I ever survive this? Um, and you know, really heartbreaking stories of people in these wards full of iron lungs. And you know, suddenly there would be a silence as one of the machines was switched off and the nurses would rush in and turn the mirrors around so that the other children wouldn't see the corpse being wielded out behind them. Um, you know, th this was a devastating disease and, um, you know, one that a lot of younger people today, you know, have forgotten about because of the, the vaccine that we have for it. Now, you mentioned uh, all the memoirs, the many memoirs. I didn't realise there were as many movies that at least uh, mentioned polio, but you point to one in particular, and that's to Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Yeah. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Rear Window came out just a couple of years before the vaccine. And you know, it is a powerful portrayal of someone, of a, of a man, a young man who is paralyzed. And even though polio is not explicitly mentioned in the film, it's very obvious to people watching the film at the time, you know, in the early 50s, that he was suffering from, from polio. And the film, you know, both represented the you know the devastating effect of this disease but it also contributed to fears about the disease and about you know what what happens to people in those circumstances um, and how it can sort of mess up your mind if you like um, so in that sense it's really important but you know I've counted at least 150 films about polio um, and this is not these are um, you know, major films. This does not include all of the, you know, very small films that that were made by different organisations who were involved in the in the polio movement. The disease was often colloquially called the crippler. Yeah. Yeah, um, this was um, the crippler being crippled, the names of the, the homes where people were sent, you know, homes for crippled children. These are, were common terms, which you know, later caused a real backlash um, or protest by people who were suffering from polio, who had been, um, had their limbs altered because of, of polio, um, you know, who you know, really fought against the stigmatization of this disease, the stigmatization of their legs and, and their arms um, that were different from what they would call normals. And I'm thinking of one in particular. There's a wonderful um, autobiography, I really recommend it, by Jim Mark, where he basically cries out, I am not polio. You know, I'm bigger than this thing that happened to me. Um, so polio and the crippler were really derogative uh, labels that really stigmatized people um, experiencing this, this horrible disease. It was no respecter of class. One of the, the better known polio victims in this country was my um, erstwhile friend Kerry Packer. But he had a phenomenon a few years ago, before he died of other causes, where polio sort of came back. Can you tell me anything about that? 
Yeah, this is something that wasn't expected. So you have these major outbreaks of polio early and mid-century. Then people, um, if they survived, got better or you know managed to live their lives. Sometimes their limbs were, were got healed. Other times they managed to live lives in in other ways in wheelchairs or you know using crutches and things like this. And then the the vaccines came, and actually people who had been physically affected by polio were then kind of ignored for um, a couple of decades, in fact, of three decades. They were kind of, you know, became invisible, if you like, because, of course, polio was a disease of the past. We were safe from that now. So they were neglected and shunted, you know, into the sort of background of, of one's memory. But then something strange happened. About 30 years, three decades, three to four decades after people had contracted polio and actually survived it and were living their lives, suddenly there was a recurrence of some of the symptoms, um, this post-polio syndrome. It's almost like long covid it's, yeah, exactly, Philip. Um, very much like long COVID, um, and 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 like long COVID, unexpected. You know, you think you're cure, you're okay again, but suddenly you've got the symptoms, and really quite severe symptoms of extreme exhaustion, of problems with your guts and breathing, and and those sorts of things, which were really distressing to people who actually thought they had turned their lives around. As I mentioned when introducing you, Joanna Burke, a couple of years ago we did a story about Paul Alexander who spent his entire life in an iron lung. Was that the only treatment prescribed for polio? Um, iron lungs were there for the most serious patients. The most serious patients were put into these iron lungs, but it wasn't the only treatment. The main treatment for those less afflicted were splints and braces, um, which did a similar sort of thing, actually. They immobilized the body or the parts of the body that had been most affected, usually legs, but not solely, not only legs. Immobilized them until the muscles um, came back and, and operated again. Um, there was an important uh, change, though, or contestation of those treatments, which actually came from Australia. Um, and this is this is the work of Sister Elizabeth Kenny, who was a bush nurse from Australia, who came to Britain. And she uh, nursed polio patients. And she decided that actually the immobilization of people for such long periods was actually making their, their injury um, worse. And so she decided that actually, through hands-on experience, she discovered that actually physical therapy really works. So in other words, in, as opposed to focusing on the neurological aspects of, um, of the disease, you know, connections between muscles and nerves, you know, being severed, so the weakened muscle then atrophies, and then that's the problem. She says, actually, we need to focus on the muscles themselves, particularly muscle spasms. And so physical therapy carried out by nurses or indeed by patients themselves were the way forward. And I mean, she was attacked by the medical establishment. The medical establishment regarded her as crazy um, and stupid. And, as a um, fraudster. And a fraudster, yes, exactly. Now, what's interesting, though, is that patients themselves found themselves getting better more quickly. And so she became 
became a kind of heroin, if you like, for patients. In fact, um, there was a, I've forgotten the date, but there was a poll um, at some stage, and she was voted, Sister Kenny, was voted America's most admired woman, um, you know, higher than <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, it's just incredible. And yet, you know, the vitriol, um, you know, vitriolic stuff that got she got from the male medical profession was extraordinary. Well, that takes us to Franklin D. Roosevelt, whose affliction, whose life in a wheelchair, was effectively hidden from the American public. Yeah, Rosenfeld is a really interesting case. I mean, he he contracted polio in, in 1921, but of course he went on to become a member of the American Senate, to become um, president eventually of the United States. And it's a curious thing about about Roosevelt that, as you say correctly, that you know he was really lucky because you know he had huge resources to help him cope with. Um, uh, you know, with um, the disease. Um, and also the press generally, there are a few major exceptions, generally, you know, gave him an easy ride. In other words, not photographing him often in a wheelchair and stuff. But he became a real figure of um, um, adulation amongst polio sufferers because he was sort of, he exemplified the fact that, you know, you weren't just polio, that you could lead a full life, a very powerful life indeed. Um, and so there are thousands and thousands of letters written to um, FDR about by polio sufferers, you know, saying, you know, taking, taking inspiration, if you like, from him. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And, and Roosevelt also set up and, you know, institutions to help people um, with polio to do research on, on polio, most famously a hospital um, called Warm Springs, which was for polio sufferers. So he was a, a really big figure showing that, you know, you could not only survive the disease, but you could actually flourish. You say that as you investigated the cultural history of the disease, you realised how the recording of that history has been impacted by racism. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I just mentioned Warm Springs a minute ago, just now, set up in, um, you know, in, in the 30s. Um, Warm Springs excluded African-American sufferers. There was even this idea that somehow African-Americans were immune to the disease, you know, really convenient um, excuse for not funding treatment uh, programs for African-Americans. So in the early 1940s, 41, one, there was established the Tasagi Infantile Paralysis Center, which was specifically for African-American sufferers of, of polio and did research, but also gave treatment, um, trained African-American doctors and nurses to, to cope with this. But the racism was really vehement. Even the fact that they had to set up a separate institution only for African-American sufferers, you know, is all part of the Jim Crow kind of legislation. And you um, point you know, out that, that when it came to testing vaccines, and I quote, yeah. humans at the bottom of the ablest pecking order were considered fair game. More racism. Yep. Yeah, more racism. So racism and ableism. So the vaccines were tested in ways that today we would absolutely see as um, as ethically 
you're totally wrong. Um, you know, there's no, no idea of um, informed consent or any form of consent, indeed. So the vaccines were tested on prisoners. Of course, a disproportionate number were, um, were black. It was also tested on epileptics, people who were called feeble-minded. Um, you know, these were the people who really, um, they were guinea pigs, let's just be, be blunt about it, for these um, uh, these vaccines. Before I let you go, Joanna, I have to ask your opinion on recent reports that after reaching near eradication, polio has resurfaced in London and New York. Yeah, I mean, it's actually really quite devastating. These are very recent reports. I mean, I've been following it here in London um, that tests done in Surridge show that actually there's been a, a, a huge increase in the polio virus in certain areas of the country, particularly London, although not exclusively, which is really worrying. And I think this is one of the things that one of the reasons why it's so important to remind ourselves how um, remind ourselves of the polio epidemics and how important vaccines are, because you know there is a real risk that with um, concerns um, and you know, false information about the um, efficiency and effectiveness of vaccines that people stop being vaccinated and stop vaccinating their children. And, you know, if we have another epidemic of polio, which, you know, sounds crazy, but it's actually now possible if people stop vaccinating their children, then, you know, we are in for some some scary times that, to be blunt about it, I think, you know, is worse than COVID. Yeah. And uh, anti-vaxxers yeah. are a sort of disease in their own right. Joanna, thank you so much for your time. Joanna Burke is the Gresham Professor in Rhetoric, which I love, and Professor (laughs) of History at Burbank University of London. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.